Hi, Kim. I'm so happy to see you. And thank you so much for being a guest on Unfounded. Our topic today is when all you have is a hammer. Uh, and we're going to be talking about innovating in the capital toolkit for early stage companies. And when I think of this topic, uh, there are few people in the world today uh, that I think of as being as inspiring and expert as you are. And as a thought partner, um, I, I can't think of anyone that I'd rather take a few minutes and talk about this topic with. We have three questions through which we're going to talk about innovating the capital toolkit. One looks to the past, one speaks to the present, and one looks to the future. And as you know, we've given each other a sneak peek into the questions about the past and the present. But the third question, the one about the future, that's the wild card. And we have not shared that question with each other in advance. So no formal bios on this show, but for anyone watching or listening, you can read about Kim's incredible experience as an entrepreneur, an investor, a technologist, a mentor, as a capital innovator, as a fund manager, all in the show notes. But instead of reading bios, what I've asked him to do is to pick three words that she thinks describe herself before we jump into the conversation. So Kim, three words, please. Persistent, innovative, and passionate. You don't need me to affirm you, but you are definitely those three things in spades. Um, okay, well, innovating the capital toolkit, let's do this. Uh, Kim, get in your time machine. I'm gonna take you to the past and I'm gonna ask you to look backwards for this question. Um, you have been blazing your own trail for a very long time, first as a founder, as a black female technologist, then as a mentor and advisor, as an investor, as a fund manager, and now as one of the fiercest advocates for innovation in capital that I think um, is in the world today. Why do you think it took investors so long to shake things up, to see that the capital toolkit was not only worthy of innovation, but ripe and ready for it? Uh, I think that the uh, internet had a huge amount of, of impact to it, internet, social media, and all of those things. And the fact that we glorify the rugged founder innovator, um, you know, and seeing that it was fewer and fewer people that were doing that um, and recognizing that there's alternatives. I mean, that's one. And then the other thing people that people don't like to hear about it is that, um, you know, the alternative financing that you and I play in um, has been made more uh, publicized with Shark Tank. I mean, right or wrong, you know, that has helped. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, everybody wants, you know, what did they say that, you know, people love to bet on things that are successful and that will help build um, innovation and wealth. And um, traditional equity is not as accessible as it used to be. And uh, because, you know, as, as the market has gone higher, you have to make bigger and bigger bets and that's fewer and fewer things that happen. So um, those are some of the, those are, those are my, some of my two cents is that more people want to get into this and, and, uh, and people are beginning to um, make aware that there's alternative ways of doing it. So thinking about why it took so long, it sounds like you're saying that there, there was just not enough uh, happening at the visible level. Cause you and I know there's been all kinds of oh, yeah. stuff going on forever. For, forever. Just, I mean, revenue-based, just... yeah. Revenue-based financing is not new. It's been, it was there like, you know, when, you know, uh, you know Moses built the, you know, led the people out of Egypt, right. you know, mm -hmm. but, it wasn't as well known and it wasn't as well publicized as alternative forms of capital, traditional debt and equity. And those have been the ones that have taken, you know, 99% of most the storyline 
not revenue-based financing. Yeah, yeah. All right, Kim, your turn. Take me to the past. All right, you have been a very, very successful equity VC funder for many, many years, but you could have stayed doing that, especially being an innovator, because you know um, there's not been a whole lot of women who've made um, equity investments and have your track record in history, and so you could have leveraged that track record. And with this new founded appreciation for inclusion to take that to the next level, but you took the risk and you pivoted and you decided to do uh, a, a transition to revenue-based financing. Why would you take that big a risk to, to do that? There are probably 15 ways I could come at that question, right? Because there's a there was my personal and professional motivations to be able to have the freedom and flexibility to invest in a broader spectrum of companies. And the only way to do that was to be ex-agnostic. I had to decouple my outcomes uh, with the sort of exit only methodology of equity uh, in order to decouple myself from the rest of that system, which wasn't as interested in investing in those founders as I was, especially at the time. But I actually think it's a, a more humble answer to that. Um, kind of goes back to the fact that I never felt comfortable uh, in that world. I never felt really welcomed. I never saw myself reflected around me and my colleagues. And, and I also think the word of like, I'm flattered that you said like very successful. Um, and in many ways I was very successful. I worked with an, a really great group of companies. I helped many of those companies achieve um, important milestones, um, but it's still difficult to win in that world, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess it's, I wanted to define success in a different way. And again, when for me, the successful measurement of equity was, you know, kind of like big baller, like how much money have your companies raised and how many exits have you had? And even if the words are empty, like, oh, I have had seven exits of which only two were particularly interesting, right? Like, or my companies have raised, you know, $65 million of which 60 got burned in a barrel. Like it, it what is success? And so um, there was that. And then I think the second part was, you know, I didn't come into a startup investment as an investor. I'm, I'm too old to have gone to college to want to be a startup investor, right? I had my own journey, my own entrepreneurial journey. And when I got to the opportunity to be on the investment side, you know, I, I had come to that with an appreciation for business model innovation and trying to think about new ways to deliver value. And I think I happened to be very lucky to be at the right place at the right time to be exiting my experience in the equity world, you know, having learned what I liked, what I was good at, what I didn't like, what I wanted to do more of at the same time that the world was awakening to the, the sort of futility of having such a narrow toolkit. So I didn't invent that. I wasn't the first person to do that, but I think I happened to be at about the right place at the right time to take advantage of it. So for me, it was the freedom and flexibility to invest in a much broader spectrum of companies. It was the ability to make more money doing it for myself and for my investors by being able to have a successful outcome from a broader spectrum of, of, of trajectories. And I think also because I just never really felt cool over there. I just, I didn't, it didn't feel like me. I felt like I shouldn't, those clothes didn't fit me right. And I, I kind of, I wore them and I was good at pretending to be comfortable with it, but I, I wasn't really happy. So it was a little bit of everything. So yeah, there you have it. All right, Kim, back to today, the terra firma of now, as I started to say. Um, you know, they say hindsight is twenty twenty, and surely um, perspective helps you look back and see mistakes that you made uh, or things that you could have improved. But I think we often know in the moment um, that we are making mistakes. And I think we often know in the moment that we are at least not giving enough attention to things that deserve our attention. 
what do you think we might, we could be doing better right now to bring more innovation and equality into funding um, instead of waiting to say in five, 10 years, oh, hindsight's 2020. So I think that, you know, there's so much energy with regards to the capital piece, which is so important. But I also go through and look at the relationship side. I mean, like I say that, um, you know, I've seen that I've got this t-shirt so many times where I've seen that, you know, all of a sudden we have this awakening of, you know what, we should have some more inclusive things. Inclusive is the term today, but, you know, it used to have its name, be it in affirmative actions and all these other types of things where, you know, all of a sudden those things were viewed as negative connotations. Um, and so, um, my my the thing with regards to today is that it really comes down to people being one accepting or appreciating and celebrating inclusivity you know and that and that's a personal choice you don't have to have millions of dollars to do that it just takes the decision to say you know what i'm going to say hello and get to know the point of view from that particular person and that starts that starts it there. You don't have to have a, you know, 10, 50 billion dollar fund to do that. Um, but when you go through and you, for those people who do go through and do that, you know, or the, or the companies being able to go through and say, you know what, once a year, once a quarter, we're going to have some event and we're going to invite business owners, you know, in to learn what we do and go through and, and take a selection of their, we're going to mentor them about how they could possibly be an alignment with, with us. Those actions would have such a transformational impact. Um, you know, the interesting thing right now is with, you know, some of the unfortunate social economic things that have become publicized. And, you know, it's not the function of some of the stuff saying that this is the first time it's happened, because this stuff has been happening for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. But you know, with that publicity, people have gone through and made commitments and statements, but not necessarily back those things up with actions. And they don't have to go through and do a whole huge thing. It can start with, you know, it, it's it start with a handful of people, you know, yeah. and say, I'm going to do something to broaden our relationships to make a difference. And yeah. if they did that and really held themselves accountable, just like they do with the other economic things, that's going to make a, dif a difference, not just that, you know, I, I made this announcement and I got these millions of people to do this, or I made this announcement on our website, and we got these people to register. And it's more of the marketing of building awareness about the statement you made than, you know, how you changed, made a difference for folks. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, girl, hit me up with your question. So similar, similar things, you know, what do you believe, you know, just like, you know, kind of on this thread of, you know, uh, you know, change and all this stuff, what do you believe must happen to improve the disparity of access to gross capital and diverse founder-led businesses? Yeah. So I've been thinking about this in so many ways um, through the lens of my own experience as a, as a female and a female founder at, at a time when that wasn't as a white person who, while I didn't come from great wealth, I certainly came from the privilege that came from growing up in a white community that was um, safe and I had good public schools and all this other stuff. And then I've also thought about it in my role as an advisor and a mentor now and what what uh, coping skills and behaviors am I bequeathing? What am I, ad what am I advocating for? Um, 
And there's really, the, there's a thousand ways you could, there's so much to fix that I could spin the bottle and we could talk about all of them. But I've been trying to figure out, to your point, where am I going to make my mark? Like, where am I going to actually roll up my sleeves and do the work? And how am I going to do that in a way that's real, satisfying, productive, and, and works, right? Because if you don't have a business model to support that, then you're like, you can't sustain that either. So how am I going to do that? Um, and I, I think for me, it's sort of been this like experimental, incremental walk into the water of, of learning to let go of a lot of my assumptions about the way I think it's going to be supposed to be and really start um, letting other people, uh, particularly those founders, tell me more about what they need. Um, but the one area where I'm really kind of bullish now is this realization that I've had through the years about the, the difference between founders who come from networks of privilege and how much of their skills and knowledge just came from osmosis. Mm -hmm. It just came from what they rubbed up against over a very long period of time and how many really talented, qualified founders I meet who were afforded no privilege of osmosis and every bit of knowledge and skill that they acquired came from effort. And I live in the muddy middle between those two places. I had a lot more privilege in osmosis uh, at, eventually by just being able to go to graduate school, right, for example. Um, but I had a lot less than a lot of my, my colleagues and friends who think I'm the same as them today. Mm -hmm. And now as a mentor and advisor, I just see it in the raw, in the real. And I see how disprivileged founders are when we think about it in that way, like that meritocracy. Because if you have to use time and effort to learn everything that others have just aggregated through osmosis, well, someone has to help you fix that. You don't have enough, there's not enough time and energy, no matter how amazing you are. You're not going to Google your way to victory on playing catch up for 20 years of knowledge and skills that you, that you didn't get by osmosis. Uh, and I think there's a really robust opportunity to be more transparent about it. And I see it a lot when I work with women uh, and people of color in, in accelerators, for example, who feel really overwhelmed and stressed by how they're supposed to pretend like they know a lot of stuff. And it's not because they don't want to do the work to, to catch up. It's that it's just, there's not enough hours in the day. Mm -hmm. And so I think finding ways to be, to destigmatize that, to not make it shameful. You shouldn't feel shitty because you didn't, your father didn't have friends at the club who, you know, could get you hooked up with a bunch of stuff. Like it shouldn't be something you should feel ashamed about. And you should be able to be held accountable, to work hard, roll up your sleeves, do the work, educate, but you, but you shouldn't be ashamed or um, be penalized because you need, you need extra resources to, to fill in the blanks that you, um, and so I'm, I think that's something we haven't quite wrapped our heads around, particularly the destigmatizing part and not making it feel like another label that we give women or people of color, another way to make them feel like they're somehow not good enough, that, that there's something wrong with them, right? So to really take that out of that zone and put it into something that's really positive and really represents all the things that you do know that I don't know and, and do that, so. Um, I think that's one really concrete thing that if we're really going to create equity and we're really going to help um, close the gap, I think we got to get better about that. So that's that. Um, all right, Kim, buckle up for another time jump. Do, 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 do. We're heading to the future. Um, so I think that when it comes to innovation and fundraising that um, old rules and old orthodoxy are very quickly eroding. Um, I think it's opening up a big opportunity space, but also a huge vacuum for chaos. <laughs> there, there will be collateral damage um, around the corner and I don't think we can stop it. I think it's a global force and the genie is out of the bottle. I think things are about to get really weird, um, but I think rather than for people like you and I to try to write new rules to control the chaos, 
I, I'm, I think maybe we need to think less about rules and start thinking more about values and, and actually letting go of rules and orthodoxy and think more about values. Um, so I'm not assuming you agree with this, but let's just say you're coming along on this journey with me. You know, what is a core value among this generation of investors or maybe even founders that you hope will either emerge if it hasn't already or that you hope will persist as we head into this chaotic um, and exciting future where the rules around entrepreneurship and funding and startups is definitely changing. So I kind of thought your, your thoughts on, a, on either a, a value that will emerge if it hasn't yet or a value that will persist if you think it exists today. Um, I would say the, the interest of doing good and doing well, you know, there was not that so much, uh, awareness about that. I mean, that's not one word, but it is that balance that, you know, I want to, I want to, you know, solve a problem and, you know, get the benefit of the risk, but I want to make an impact that's going to help the, the people behind me or better make things better. Um, and that was not as prevalent as before. So I think that that's important. And, and not to say that at all, everybody's trying to be a social economic entrepreneur, but they are looking at it from the standpoint, it's not just, you know, damn the damn everything else. All I do want to do is make a buck and it really doesn't matter. You know, I mean, because there's so many other issues, be it, you know, environmental, um, societal, global, that they're looking beyond just, you know, at the end of the day, if it may not be directly, indirectly, what can I do to make, you know, to have that be part of, of my, my impact? Well, I'm not supposed to respond, but I think whether, whether the geezers like it or not, I, I think the next generation of global citizens are going to build their businesses that way anyway, <laughs> whether we like yeah. it or not. So yeah. we're either going to figure out how to get comfortable with it or we're going to get left behind. So, yeah. um, all right, Kim, home stretch, launch me into tomorrow. Ask me about the future. So again, it goes back to what didn't want to actually use this term, but building your legacy, you know, when you think about you know, what you do with revenue-based financing and the platform that you build, what three things will you do to make this method of, um, of funding as well-known and the capital stack for growing businesses as, um, as, as you know, equity? Yeah. And actually, there's, so this is a two-parter, so that's one. Okay. And then the other right. is the balance piece. And I, I know it's like people hate, you know, women. It's like, why do they always ask this balance question? Because at the end of the day, it's important. I don't hate it. I don't you know, hate it at I, all. Because I was one of those people that, you know, well, those women that, you know, I wanted it all. I didn't want to just have a career. I wanted to have a family too. And so how are you going to balance to make a difference in the capital market as well as a rewarding time with your family? So okay, I'm going to answer two. the first one. I'm going to answer the first one first, so that if I burst into tears answering the second one, I can just slowly fade out this video, and no one will have to be the wiser. Um, so I think for me, it's I don't know if I'm fully committed to you know revenue versus right equity or equity versus revenue. I think um, I'm really interested in blowing up all of the preciousness that that the investors especially have mostly in the narrative around these models as though they are in them themselves um, permanent, austere. In fact, they're not. I mean, even equity has changed in the tools we use. I think my, I want my legacy to be permission and freedom for us to always be thinking anew and afresh about how we're going to get 
people the money they need to build the businesses that the world needs to be a better place, right? Mm -hmm. And I think for me, if I have, if I can accomplish anything, it's to show that it's okay to love all the children and you can love them better at different times, but what I, but that you don't have to get in bed with one model and then throw your bot, chain your body to it and defend it at all costs. If in fact, it turns out at some point in time, it stops working. Right. For the, for the, to your point, if it stops working for the goals you're trying to achieve, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I feel my model isn't perfect. And we've iterated our deals a thousand times. And today it's a very different world than it was even six months ago. There's tons of money sloshing around out there. And if you don't keep a clear path to the value that you, values that you have and the goals you want to achieve, and you're just tied to the orthodoxy of the deal that you have or the form that you use, I think we've missed the point. And now we're just becoming those guys. Now mm -hmm. you and me are just becoming wiser, prettier, because, uh, mm -hmm. you know, amazing women versions of these, you know, vehicles that couldn't get out of their own way. And mm -hmm. so I think I want, I hope my legacy is to be, is, is to de-stigmatize alternatives from the get-go and instead get us around the corner here to accept that the, that the capital toolkit has diversified. It's going to diversify faster and faster and faster. And if we want to succeed, then we need to innovate with it. And we've got to be more transparent with our founders about not just selling our form of capital to them, but instead supporting them in becoming dynamic capital operators that have the skills that they need to evaluate all different kinds of capital, even if in the end they don't choose ours. Mm -hmm. Like that's how we're going to get there. So I think for me, a lot of my, my work now that I've gotten to here is to start to not forget that I got here because I, I wanted to innovate and not just sit here now because I found a modicum of success on an alternative, you know, that fit nicely in the world. Mm -hmm. um, on the balance side, I think it's a really important question in my, uh, my final interview today is with a, a, another amazing woman about um, the ageism and the impact it has on women and how female experience, um, you know, is still pretty taboo. We want to bring women into the worlds around us, but we don't want to talk about the realities of their experience. Um, I talk to my founders a lot about the penalties of um, women's lived experience and, and the realities of um, having to balance uh, all kinds of things because of the role that society gives women, whether you want it or not. And then depending on how much privilege you have, you get to pick and choose how much of that you, but there's some of it you just cannot, many of us cannot escape. I cannot, I cannot escape taking care of my mother. It's my job and no one else will if I don't. How do I fit that in over the next 10 years, right? And as I wanna dedicate myself fully and completely to the to my 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 work, right? I can't. A 14 year old son who's gonna enter high school next year and I lay in bed and I wonder if I missed the boat, did I spend enough time with him? I don't know. And I think we talk about men's experiences naturally and normally through business. We always have. All of business culture was about trying to help men deal with all kinds of things that, that didn't feel taboo. God forbid you talk about a period at work or menopause, like the whole place experience or please don't get pregnant, young female founder, because nobody could possibly handle that. I think there's, we have to just destigmatize the realities of gender roles, whether we like them or not. Not talking about them doesn't make them go away. Mm. Not talking about gender bias and gender roles doesn't make them not exist. When I leave here today, I am still a woman in a world filled with misogyny and little boxes that are hard to break out of. And I think it's same, it's true with race. Like not pretending like it doesn't exist does not help, does not help us move forward. So I think, for me, a lot of what I want to do is I want to get to a world where you can say the word tampon without making half the table cringe, right? Like that's how we, you really, that's how bad it is. But we talk about, we talk about male things all the time. Like it's a, no big deal, right? Farts and burps, but the word tampon sends people into a 
tizzy. So I think for balance, before we can have balance, we have to have transparency and honesty. And again, there is no female monolith. There are women's experiences as diverse as men's, right? And not all women do, not all women get married. Not all women have children. Not all women have, like, but there's still things that society thrusts upon women generally. And we don't talk about that. And I think we are getting maybe less punitive, but that's not the same as proactively designing systems and structures and things inside of our companies and inside of our organizations to not just not penalize women for their experiences, but rather to support, enable, and make those experiences better. Like just that we are no longer firing women when they get pregnant is not a victory. No, it's not. And, and they have to recognize that, you know, uh, I mean, I could tell you some of the times in my career where it's like, oh, well, so-and-so is going to go on maternity leave. Well, we'll wait till she goes on maternity leave. We're going to do all this stuff. And it's just like- Seriously, that's not a victory. No. And just because you let her come back and you didn't give her job to someone else, we didn't win. And I think I have a founder in my network that I advise right now who is pregnant. And thankfully with Zoom, no one can tell yet. But now she's figuring out when is she supposed to tell her investors? When is she like, because she knows she's not a fool. She knows that, that, that their operating assumption is big things have changed and they have, but it goes right to this very dehumanizing uh, uh, state where you lose all your agency as though your brain flew away with your body. Like when you're like in it. And I think we have a long way to go that if we really want women to have equal footing in our world, then we need to make talking about dealing with valuing women's lived experience a much higher priority. And if, and I'll die doing that. Like I will die. I, do, I literally run around and be like, hey, tampon, tampon vagina, vagina, like I, I will make you uncomfortable uh, if I can in order to like just stop with this and what, how we deal with women and whether they have familial responsibilities or anything, mental health, so many things. Um, so that's what I, when I think about balance, I, we can't even have balance until we can have transparency. And until I can comfortably not feel ashamed of the realities of my lived experience, how can we have balance? It's ridiculous. So yeah. before, before I, I probably will die before balance comes but I will be uh, one happy old bitch if I die when I think we've gotten to transparency. And then maybe if we get to transparency, the younger women that I'm around today, maybe they'll get to balance, right? Maybe they'll find or make their own balance, right? Because also is what we got sold a bill of goods on what balance looks like that also might have been a little unfair. So there you have it. I could do I'm on fire <laughs> about this topic. Um, so, um, well, that's it. We have circumnavigated the 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 universe with three questions um and uh, i appreciate the work that you do please keep doing it and i love having you as a friend as a mentor as a colleague uh, and i can't wait till this episode is live and i'm going to promote the crap out of it because um everyone should know your name everyone so thank you so much thank you back at you <laughs> <laughs>